0: Welcome to the Beyond Devices Podcast. My name's Jan Dawson and Aaron Miller is with me as my co-host as always. We have three topics for you today. The first topic is the Mac App Store. and uh, There's been something of a, an issue with the Mac App Store over the past 10 days or so. First emerged last week uh, where a number of apps that have been downloaded from the store stopped working properly uh, throwing up various error messages and Apple's finally addressed that today, Wednesday, the day that we're recording this. But we'll talk a little bit about what's happened there and then use that as a jumping off point for talking about issues around the Mac App Store in general. Our second topic will be our question of the week. And this week I've done the prep work for this. And the question is, why does Facebook have so many apps? What's it trying to achieve there? And is it likely to work? And then our third topic will be... uh, on the face of it, a minor topic, Apple seems to be coming out with a new dock for the Apple Watch. The news there has come out in rather a strange way and that it's shown up in stores before Apple's made an official announcement about it. Um, but that leads to a broader discussion about the history of docks with Apple products and what that's about, ultimately. You know, why Apple feels the need to make docks for these products, why people buy them, um, and the kind of the history of all of that. And, and Aaron's dug up some interesting tidbits about all of that, which we'll talk through. And then we'll wrap up, as usual, with our weekly pick at the end of the episode when Aaron has something to recommend to us and this week that's a book. So starting off with the Mac App Store topic, in case you haven't seen the news here, um, last week issues started to arise and I certainly saw this as a user of of apps downloaded from the Mac App Store that certain apps and in my case I think it was Tweetbot and and the RSS app reader um, stopped working when I tried to launch them from the dock uh, they threw up an error message saying that they were somehow broken or damaged and needed to be re-downloaded from the App Store and the only thing to do was to delete them and then reinstall them Uh, in one case it worked first time for me in another case it didn't work the first time I tried it and had to try several times Um, and you know I started wondering if I had some issue or corruption issue or something on my computer, but it quickly became clear that many people were having similar issues. Um, And from what developers were saying, it seemed there was a lapsed certificate of some kind. It seemed it was the fifth year anniversary of the App Store for the Mac, and uh, that had caused uh, the original certificate to lapse. Um, and that was causing the problems. And, and for basically a week, Apple didn't say anything about this publicly. They talked to, they responded to individuals online in, in various support forums and actually suggested the somewhat bizarre step of leaving reviews on apps um, so the developers would see them and help to fix the issue as if the developers could do anything about this. Um, which really seemed counterproductive. And Apple didn't make any public statements about it at all until today, as I say, Wednesday, when they finally started sending messages to developers, which were not very apologetic in tone. They were explanatory. It turned out that they'd replaced the original certificate with a new certificate. that used a higher order hashing algorithm or something. um, And that was what was causing the problems and they said, made some suggestions for how to fix things, but um, that's kind of where, where they've left things for today. There was a very brief apology in the last paragraph, but it was pretty boilerplate stuff. So anyway, that's the specific issue. Um, so we'll start out talking about that, but we'll, we'll also talk about broader issues around the Mac App Store. Uh, Aaron, did you have any thoughts about all of this to kick us off?
1: Well, uh, I mean, it made me sad to see the way that all shook out, um, but primarily because it it sort of it, it upholds the general sense that Apple doesn't seem to care a whole lot about the Mac app store and the developers that are, that are publishing their apps there. And and so it was just, it was frustrating because I've always felt like it was the Mac app store is something like a neglected stepchild for Apple. And that, if anything, this sort of reaffirmed that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I just, I mean, utterly counterproductive, the initial response as well. And you saw developers getting negative reviews on their apps complaining that they weren't working. And and yet, you know, Apple support people in the forums were sending people to the apps to do exactly that, which was utterly unfair given that the whole reason for the problem was nothing to do with individual developers. It was all about the app store. Um, but, yeah, it does feed into this kind of broader narrative. And, you know, this is one of the issues... It was interesting. There was a piece that came out, I think, yesterday from Dan Council. He wrote wrote a blog post called Not on the Mac App Store, in which he originally listed around 50 apps that could not be found on the Mac App Store, but that were really quality apps that were made for the Mac. Um, I think he's up to 66 apps on that list now. He keeps adding to it as people recommend additional ones. Um, But the whole point of the post was, you know, there are lots of people who are deliberately withholding their apps from the Mac App Store now for a variety of reasons. And one of those is sandboxing so the Mac App Store now doesn't let apps interact with each other in the way that they perhaps were able to in the past and as such certain apps that need to kind of operate at a system level whether it's sort of uh, keyboard shortcut type apps or, or you know other apps that do uh, processing or integrate with other applications can't do those things anymore if, if they're distributed through the Mac App Store so they now have to circumvent it. Um, But there are a variety of other things too, you know, paid upgrades and other things that people have complained about both on the Mac App Store and iOS App Store as well. Um, But it just, you know, the the complaints about all of this have been getting louder and louder and Apple doesn't really seem to be addressing them. And you, I mean, it's a sort of conspiracy conspiracy theory level statement to make. And I don't really believe this, but Apple's almost acting as if they kind of regret having launched the Mac App Store and they're kind of almost hoping it will go away. It just really seems to be underperforming. And, and as you said, neglected at this point. The, the
1: Mac App Store was an interesting creation, uh, actually, because, I mean, Apple's had the OS X platform for a decade and a half. It's had Developers designing software for Macs for for more uh, double that time. Right. And and it's strange that they would uh, not really stumble on the idea of doing their own Macs app store until they did the iOS app store.
0: Hmm. And yet that kind of wasn't the standard model on any platform, was it? I mean, you know, Windows on, on Mac, obviously, and on other platforms, it's always been, you know, you've got your operating system from one place, and then you've sort of ferreted around the web, at least for the last 30 years or so, looking for apps, um, you know, the, separately. There wasn't sort of an official distribution for any of these platforms.
1: No, there wasn't an official one, but there was definitely, uh, for the Mac for years, there was definitely an unofficial one in the form of version tracker. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Version Tracker kind of lost its mojo and, and and fell by the wayside somewhere between 2007-2010. Um, but uh, there was a long stretch there from the late 90s to the mid-2000s when, if you needed software for a Mac, that was where you went. And, and, mm-hmm. and the cool thing about Version Tracker is that there were generally pretty trustworthy reviews of apps it had a huge database because developers went there before anywhere else there were always links to the original developers websites they didn't host any software themselves they just linked to developer websites but you'd get direct links for downloads so if you clicked on the link from version tracker it took you straight to the download link for the for the developer the truth is i i kind of miss version tracker um, i think dan council's Blog post with the list of let's see, it's now 66 apps that are not in the Mac App Store. You know, it, like that. This is the best one of the best alternatives we have right now for finding software for the Mac outside of the Mac App Store is kind of sad, because in its glory days, Version Tracker was awesome. It really was. And, and so you know that I don't know. I mean, Version Tracker was already kind of on its way out a little bit when Apple did the Mac App Store. There were obviously a lot of security concerns that the Apple argued to get people to do the Mac App Store. At the same time, there was a bunch of uh, hesitation on the part of developers when the Mac App Store was announced because of how Apple had mismanaged the iOS App Store in certain ways. Really long review periods, uh, sort of arbitrary denials you know, or arbitrary rejections for, for apps. Um, Everybody was worried. I think a lot of Mac developers were cautious about sort of handing the keys of distribution over to Apple. And and obviously that's still the case. And, And, you know, the sandboxing has been a problem, but Apple's gotten better and made it more flexible. But for a lot of developers, they just still don't feel like it's their best approach. Plus, you know, paid upgrades are another problem that the Mac App Store still mishandles, just like iOS App Store does. You know, there's no simple way to do paid upgrades beyond just essentially telling Log- your customers, yeah, just yeah. buy buy a new one, buy a new right. app, you know, right. which is what TweetBot has had to do, for example, to maintain their profitability.
0: Yeah, yeah. And they did some clever stuff to kind of get around the, the upgrade Um problem specifically but they shouldn't have had to frankly you know we've talked about this before in the context of the ipad too and don't want to rehash all of that but it does seem as if you know apple's not really responding here to all this developer feedback that's been pretty insistent and increasingly vocal over the last couple of years both around the ios app store and the mac app store and i think One of the challenges with the Mac App Store in particular is with sandboxing, for example, you know, that there always was a way to do this stuff in the past. And so Apple's actually taken functionality away. And it's done that for, you know, good reasons. It's all about safety and security and so on. But... You know, unlike on iOS, where, you know, the doors are opening up somewhat, if, if anything, you know, with extensions and other things like that. And and now, you know, content blockers in Safari and third-party keyboards, you know, on the Mac App Store, things seem to have been tightened down over the last several years. So things are actually getting harder uh, from a third-party app developer perspective. I, I wonder about what this does to the average consumer. I mean, you mentioned version tracker and certainly for, you know, your sort of hardcore Mac users over, you know, the last 15 years or so, um, you know, things like that would have been familiar. But for your sort of brand new Mac user, especially one coming from another platform, the the presence of an app store, especially if they're familiar with, you know, iPhones or even Android phones, is sort of comforting. You know, that's where you go to get trustworthy apps and so on. So, you know, as the Mac app store struggles, you know, if it eventually goes away or if it just becomes less relevant, what is the everyday consumer going to do? Where are they going to go? You know, I mean, these lists like down. Council's list might be a starting point, but how would you even come across that if you're, you know, a student going to university with your first MacBook or whatever? Um, how do you find that stuff? How do you know which of those things to trust? How do you know which of them the best? You know, the, the advantage of a single official source is you know, you know, if it's at least in theory, and this is part of the problem is it's not true in practice. But at least in theory, if it works the way the iOS App Store does, you know, that's where all the good stuff is. You know, you can trust it that it works properly that um, you can rely on it, that it's been vetted, it's not going to have a virus in it, it's not going to try to hijack your computer um, and it'll be easily set update going forward as well. You know how do you replicate all of that in the absence of a Mac App Store or
1: as the Mac app Store becomes less comprehensive? Right. And, and that's why you know I, I can totally I can still picture Apple turning around on this. Mm-hmm. Like, I can still picture Apple saying, OK, this certificate issue was a bit embarrassing. We need to finally get around to taking care of this problem. I, I'm not optimistic that's going to happen, but I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. So it's a little too early, in my opinion, to to you know predict the death of the Mac App Store. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, we don't know what the long-term plans are for OS X generally. Um, and it's hard to say. I, I I can't help but feel like there is going to be a shake up, like an OS ten, you know, ground level shakeup like there was shifting from OS nine to OS ten. And and who knows what that future will hold for developers. Um, it, it, it it's you know, the truth is before if you were a Mac developer it was hard just because there weren't very many Mac users to begin with. Mm-hmm. And and now it's hard because Everybody, like you said, sort of defaults to the Mac App Store. And so the number of, of users that are willing to go search the internet to find Mac software is also small. Right. And so it's sad that the Mac App Store hasn't dramatically in, in improved the circumstances of the Mac developer community. And you know, when Apple talks about how much they love developers and what a big deal WWDC is, it seems pretty obvious that it's all about iOS. Right, um, and and that makes sense because that's where Apple's making all of its money right now. Right, um, but yeah, I, it's
0: about ten times the size of, of the Mac. Right, but store I still but I
1: still can't help but feel that you know this is financially worth the effort on Apple's part to make the Mac App Store a best of class kind of experience, which it isn't
0: right well, now. Well, it's not like they've been neglecting the Mac in other ways. I mean, you had this whole back to the Mac theme no, that's right. a while back. You know, um, you know all the stuff that's you know continuity and handoff and all the stuff like notes and maps and so on that's, you know, migrated back over to the Mac again in the last couple of years, you know, they've really been making an effort to make the experience more consistent. And obviously the app store is part of that
1: picture. And yet, you know, it doesn't perform as well in many ways. Well, and if you'll notice the way Apple talks about the Mac, they don't talk about it relative to apps. Um, you know, they don't showcase in their advertising, for example, what amazing app developers have done for the Mac They Mm -hmm. do that all the time with with iOS, but they don't do it with the Mac. They don't talk about, you know, oh, here's something amazing that you can do on your Mac thanks to the third-party developer. Uh, Which to me is a strange omission, because there's really cool stuff out there that you can do Mm -hmm. on the Mac that you can't do on iOS. And it's not because of anything Apple designed. I think Apple thinks of their Mac users as, you know, using email, browsing the web, Mm -hmm. you know, typing up documents or making lists and spreadsheets. And... Apple's got all those bases covered on their own with their own software. And so the idea that you would need a Mac, you know, to do anything especially creative or outside of the box or unique with software, you know, even with gaming, Apple still doesn't make a big deal out of gaming on the Mac nearly as much as they do on iOS. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no,
0: that's true. And, yeah, it's much more self-contained, or at least they think of it as much more self-contained, I suspect. You know, with they've always had, you know, iWork and iLife in the past, and those things have been rebadged a little bit recently, but they're still there in some form, you know, things like iMovie and, um, you know, increasingly content consumption stuff like iBooks and the iTunes Store and its expanded form and all that kind of stuff. You know, you really could live within the pre-installed world of the Mac without venturing too far into third-party apps in a way that I think, you know, you couldn't quite as much on the iPhone. Um, where probably a lot of what you want to do does come from third-party apps, although with things like Apple Music and Apple News, Apple is trying to kind of claw some of that back again, which I think is interesting. Um, They don't seem to have quite the same problem on the Mac.
1: No, but even then, they're still promoting app developers. I mean, whenever they run ads... And they mm-hmm. show like Star Walk, right? I mean, they always right. feature these these other app developers who've done awesome things, mm-hmm. but they don't really feature Mac developers. And I mean, to be fair, there's less money for developers to make on the Mac platform. It's just by by virtue of the size difference between the platforms. Right. But uh, it it I still can't understand why the same approach wouldn't be valuable. Like, why not make a big deal out of all this great software that's out there that you can mm-hmm. install on the Mac? Um, right. Because it, it seems like, you know, they, Apple certainly wants the Mac to grow. There's no doubt about that. In fact, it's been the only PC vendor, you know, over the last year that's seen any growth. Uh, yeah. So yeah. why not make a big deal out of what you can do? Especially because that targets a long-standing, you know, complaint of the Mac platform is that there's always been less software on the Mac. I mean, people have been mm-hmm. complaining about this since the 90s. And right. so... It's still the truth today. I mean, there's still less software on the Mac than there is on a Windows computer. You mm-hmm. know, and why not go after that a little bit to encourage people to come to the Mac? I mean, I don't understand why you wouldn't give them an extra reason right, to come to the Mac by talking about the great software that's out there, because there really is mm-hmm. a lot of great software. In fact, I think the truth is, for the ways that people tend to use their computers, the, the third-party software available on the Mac is as good or better than anything you'd find in Windows.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I use. if I think about where I spend my time, I do most of my sort of um, office-type stuff in the Apple suite. So I use pages and I use, for writing reports and that kind of thing, I use numbers for number crunching and, and generating graphs and things like that, and then I use Keynote for presentation. So I, I use those, but I also spend a lot of time in Evernote, um, which was downloaded through the Mac App Store, um, but also in Dropbox, which wasn't, um, and um, Tweetbot, which was. Um, but then uh, I use a keyboard shortcut um, app called A Text, which you know I did use in its Mac App Store version, but with the latest. Uh, update doesn't work anymore. And so I now had to revert to their non-app store version to get it working again. So it's interesting. My life is certainly split between you know these three categories where it's you know stuff that comes pre-installed, stuff that I get through the app store, and then stuff that I have to get from other sources. And I, I suspect a lot of people are that way. And, and you're right. They don't play that up anywhere near enough in uh, at least the Mac app store side of it and anywhere near enough in the advertising.
1: Yeah. So I don't know. I mean... Like I said, I can picture Apple changing tack on this. I'm not optimistic Mm -hmm. that they will, but I think there's definitely value in them doing so. Whether, you know, the thing is, is Apple's a company of intense focus. Mm -hmm. And that focus often means that other things they do get neglected. And the Mac App Store is absolutely one of those things right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't feel like there's anything technically impossible here. It feels more like a will issue than a than a you know um technical issue you know all of this stuff could be fixed apple would just have to make the decision to to do these things and then to assign the resources to get them done um, and so yeah to your point it may well be you know and they're famously um always you know employees are constrained in terms of what they can work on and how many employees they even have to work on things and, and being assigned to one project means by definition you're not assigned to a different one and um, so things get left behind, but you know this does feel like it's important enough to merit the kind of investment and resources it needs to, to get it up to par.
1: A- Apple will make that decision on what a difference it will make in five years, not in the next year or two. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it, and
0: to your point, if they're working on some other long, long-term strategy for OS ten or whatever that becomes Mac OS. Um, then perhaps, you know, that's why they're kind of putting this on the back burner for now. Perhaps they have other intentions for it yeah.
1: down the road. I've seen this repeatedly. I remember when iMovie got updated and they stripped out the, the menu connection between iMovie and iDVD. They mm. kept iDVD around, but they stopped updating it. And when iMovie was updated, there, in the previous version, there used to be a menu command saying, send project to iDVD. And it would right. sort of go through the hassle of opening iDVD, opening up a new project, inserting your media so it could start crunching it for, for burning to DVD. And mm-hmm. they took that out. Yep. It was still possible to to burn a movie to iDVD, but it was a lot less convenient. Right. And, and I remember at the time, Apple was convinced that DVDs were dying and everybody else thought Apple was crazy and that DVDs would be around for a long time, lo- a long time longer. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, Apple was making that choice based on what was going to be happening five years in the future. Right. So. Right.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll leave that topic there, um, move on to our question of the week um and this week I've done the prep work and anybody listening for the first time our question of the week is where we take it in turns to research a topic and then um try to answer one big question and oftentimes we do that by answering several smaller questions and this week the the topic is Facebook and the question is um why does Facebook have so many apps and what's what's the strategy behind that
1: so yeah, and that's an interesting question because I've wondered this myself. I remember, in fact, when when Facebook split off the messaging functionality out of the core Facebook app and into the separate messaging app, I was really annoyed by that. I don't use Facebook messages a lot, and so it was it was really convenient to have that built into Facebook and then to have to switch to another app. I don't know, felt burdensome. First world problems, right? But anyway, <laughs> you know, I, I'm curious. What I was surprised by, actually, yeah, when you and I were talking about this at the beginning, is just how many apps Facebook has. This was something that was new to me. So why don't we start there? What what apps does Facebook actually have as part of this strategy?
0: Right. And th- there are a lot of them. And that, and, th- and the number may be surprising to some people. And some of them are not sort of mainstream consumer apps either, but we can talk through that. But um, just looking in the, uh, the iOS app store right now, there are 20 apps from Facebook, Inc., um, and uh, that doesn't include um, two apps that are originally created by other companies now owned by Facebook. So it doesn't include Instagram, it doesn't include WhatsApp both of which were created independently and then acquired by Facebook down the line. But you've got the core Facebook app and the Messenger app that were split out from it uh, a while back. Um, You've got the Facebook Pages Manager. So if you run a page on Facebook, you've got a separate app for managing your page. Uh, They launched a news app called Paper, um, I think sometime very early this year or sometime last year. There's a Groups app. So if you're part of a Facebook group and you want to manage that, um, there's uh, Notify, which was the newest one that they just launched last week which is a notifications app. they have got Slingshot, which is for um, taking and sharing photos and videos. Um, you've got stickers for Messenger. You've got um, something called Strobe for Messenger. um Selfied for Messenger. These are all little plugins that can plug into the Messenger application. Um, there's uh, Riff, which is about collaborative video editing. Um, and various others as well. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of them. I think the most mainstream and familiar ones would be the Facebook and Messenger apps, Paper was a sort of mainstream consumer one as well, and Notify, as I say, is the newest one, and then Instagram and WhatsApp, which, again, were created separately but are now owned by Facebook as well.
1: So... so, so why this approach? I mean, why not just keep everything in one app, or at least as much as is reasonable? I, I can understand why they don't integrate Instagram into the main Facebook app. But why split off messages, for example? Paper, I remember being really popular at first, and a lot of people really liked it, but I don't have the impression that very many people are using it anymore. So what's, what's the rationale behind this approach of so many different apps?
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things behind it. I think one is there's a certain amount of experimentation, and I think paper's probably a good example of that sort of experimentation approach. You know, the design there was great. The user interface was really uh, very tasteful. Actually, a lot of people said they liked it better than the Facebook app itself. But it really doesn't seem to have gone anywhere. And part of the reason was it kind of duplicated a lot of the functionality, but also lost some of the functionality. And people were just accustomed to using the main Facebook app. I think with Messenger, the reason they split that out was twofold. I think one is messaging's become a thing in its own right. And you don't want to have to dive into an app that's mostly about something else in order to to engage in messaging. You want it to be a dedicated app where you just have your list of friends. And you can easily dip in and out of that. And so I think that was one reason for it. The other was there are people out there who want to use Facebook Messenger but don't actually want to use the core Facebook experience. And so separating it out also allows those people to continue to be Facebook users without necessarily having to use the Facebook app and and you know the the Facebook core experience may not be that attractive to somebody but the messaging aspects might be and so this allows them to use it without all the clutter there's an analogy there to Apple Music when it launched you know it took an app that was already pretty fully featured and then added in streaming and recommendations and radio and all the rest of that into it. Um, and it's quite cluttered as a result. And we've talked about you know, the, the benefits and drawbacks of, of having a single application for Apple Music. But there is there is this argument about clutter and that the more you add to a single app, the more cluttered things get, the harder it gets for any particular thing to be found by the user and to be easily used without being distracted or feeling like other things are getting in the way. But the other reason, I think, why Facebook's creating all these applications is um, strategic um, in that... You know, Facebook has kind of got to where it is today by being really good at certain things, um, but its currency ultimately is attention. It wants as much of your time as possible because the way it makes money is to serve your ads while it's got your attention. Um, and the core Facebook experience has evolved over time, but it's ultimately still mostly about things shared by your friends that you then consume when you dip in and out of the app. And so many of these other things that they've done are attempts to kind of capture more of your attention for more time and to capture more of your other types of activities. And in some ways, it's as if Facebook's trying to recreate the position that, say, iOS or Android or Windows occupy in our minds, where it's almost like an operating system. And it has many of the same features as an operating system. And I've referred to it as a meta operating system um, because it's not a true operating system, Interestingly, Facebook has tried that too. So a couple of years ago, they launched a phone in partnership with, I think, HTC, um, which was called the Facebook phone. And the whole idea was it was a very Facebook-centric experience uh, on a phone. So the whole phone was kind of geared around Facebook and, and Facebook first and so on. It was a total flop. And then they launched, um, maybe a year ago now, something called Facebook Home, which was a launcher for Android. And a launcher, if you're not familiar with how those work on Android, basically takes over the user interface on the device and turns it into something else. And so this was a Facebook-centric launcher. So this is the sort of next best thing to having a phone that came preloaded with all the good Facebook stuff, was basically sort of stick that on after the fact and replace all the kind of Google-centric stuff that Android normally comes with. That also kind of flopped. It really didn't go anywhere. Um, And so I think, you know, what we're seeing now is this third phase of Facebook trying to create something that goes beyond just a single app that's really like an ecosystem. Um, And you've seen them do things like with Messenger now, there's sort of an app store within Messenger where you can get third party applications that plug into it for, you know, easily sending gifts to your friends, for example, or uh, clips from sports, um, you know, from football games or baseball games, whatever you might want to insert in there. Um, So they've got sort of an app store of, of some sort. They've got this Notify app they launched last week, which is about notifications from third-party news websites and other websites. So, you know, the notification layer from an operating system basically now happening within Facebook's world. Um, So, you know, lots of ways in which they're basically replicating that. And I think that's all about capturing more of your attention And I think the other thing it's about is that, you know, there's only so much stuff that your friends are going to share in the course of a given day and even less of that stuff that's actually going to be interesting and relevant to you and going to want to make you spend time there. And Facebook over the last several years has had this algorithm that's filtered what you see from your friends based on what you're most likely to engage with. And so if it wants to grow your attention span, you know, keep you longer on the service and using it for more time during the day, it also has to open up to other sources of content than just what your friends have shared. And so, it now has a videos tab, for example, that it's experimenting with in the core Facebook experience where it will show you videos that haven't been shared by your friends. Um, this Notify app is a way to get you consume news and stuff like that within their browser within the app. So again, they're keeping you within their world. But again, now it's content that hasn't been explicitly shared by your friends. So I think that kind of capturing more of your attention and then serving up content that hasn't been shared by your friends. I think those are the two key things that are behind this sort of proliferation of apps
1: from Facebook. So, I so I mean, is this strategy working, is the question. I mean, for example, we talked about Paper and how it was really cool right. and, and people really enjoyed it, but then the experiment sort of, the, the, the excitement wore off and people were done with it and migrated back to the original core Facebook app. So, so the question is, do you think this strategy is really working?
0: Yeah, I think it's up in the air still at this point. I think it has worked in some cases. You know, splitting off Messenger really made a lot of people unhappy when it first happened and people complained a lot about it. But the reality is that, you know, Facebook's the most used app on on many people's phones around the world. And Facebook Messenger's now also, you know, in the top 10. Certainly in the US, it's in the top 10 in terms of most used mobile apps. uh, And the numbers keep climbing. And so, you know, that's really been validated. You know, that was a good decision to split that off. People are using both applications now. And so Facebook's capturing time from its users in two different places. They acquired Instagram. Um, and that's you know also in the top 10 and among teenagers it's in some cases displaced Facebook as the most used application along with Snapchat which obviously Facebook tried to acquire but failed. Um, WhatsApp in Asia in particular is very popular in a number of countries where Facebook itself isn't as popular and so again capturing more of that attention either by launching or acquiring new applications is, is working in some cases but you know paper that you mentioned is a good example of where it hasn't worked that was an experiment that didn't really work obviously Facebook Home that launcher that they had for Android didn't really pan out either. So Facebook's a company, their slogan internally used to be move fast and break things. Um, And there was this sort of very much an experimentation mentality of, you know, kind of get stuff out the door, see if it works, keep, you know, fixing it. And if it breaks, and fix it again. And, you know, they actually shifted slightly away from that now. They have a slightly different slogan um, internally for their developers. But the mentality is still there of trying a lot of different stuff and seeing what sticks. And Google's definitely done the same kind of thing as well. And I think with Facebook the best way to summarize it is some of it's worked, some of it hasn't and that's likely to continue to be the case going forward. Some of this stuff will work. I really don't know if notify is going to work that as I said the strategic rationale behind that makes a lot of sense. I'm not
1: sure that the user appeal is really there. How, how much of this culture you talked about this like internal culture of, you know, moving fast and breaking things do you think was born out of the fact that the original Facebook was just web based? Where you could you could roll out a new user interface on the web, without you know having to go through the hassle of it being an app. Uh, an, app yeah, APIs, he- an app with APIs, an app with you know having to go through an app store review process. Like how much of that do you think has influenced the way Facebook is approaching things?
0: Yeah, I think that's a a really good question too. I I think that definitely comes from that. I think, you know, software companies, especially modern software companies in general, are much more prone to think that way. You know, it's something that Apple could never do, for example, with, you know, being a hardware company or Samsung or, you know, any other sort of hardware maker. You can't simply change stuff once it's out the door. So you have to really think through it and get it right the first time. I think web companies and even app-based companies have the luxury of saying, okay, if it doesn't work, we can always push an update. And Facebook, obviously, through its web interface can make changes anytime at once. With its app, major changes obviously have to go through the app store approval process on, on iOS and Android and Windows, um, but it's also architected its apps in such a way that it can do some A-B testing. So minor features can be tested in with a subset of users without having to roll them out to everybody at once. So they can try stuff out and experiment. And so they've kind of carried that over from the sort of web mentality that you were talking about there, where they can try things out in a way that's pretty low risk and they can make rapid changes changes and fixes to things as they go along.
1: Is, is there a notable cost for Facebook to do this? I mean, I know that there's always friction when you change things in your software. People get annoyed, I can remember. And that's true on the web, not just in apps where, mm. you know, if something about the interface has changed that's contrary to users' expectations, they're going to complain about it just because it's different, not because it's better or mm. worse. You know, how much do you think that or any other costs are are things that Facebook ought to be considering with this strategy?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, making these frequent changes can be really galling for users. And, you know, Google's been a good example of this, too. Google's different from Facebook in that, you know, Facebook has tended to stick with things that are working and, and have a significant base of users associated with them. Google's been famous for killing off even things that were relatively popular, like Google Reader, for example. Um, Facebook hasn't done that so much. And, you know, there's 20 apps that I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, you know, they're still around, even though some of them really aren't used very much. Um, and so that's kind of testament to the fact that Facebook tends to l- let this stuff stick around, even if it doesn't seem to be working all that well. But yeah, anytime you make changes, you're going to have people who don't like them. And when your user base is one and a half billion people, you know, even if 1% of users doesn't like him, that's 15 million people. So, Um, You know, just the sheer size of the user base means there's always going to be somebody who's unhappy about it. But the reality is Facebook kind of has a monopoly on what Facebook does. And, you know, even if it makes these changes, where are people going to go? You know, they're not going to go to Google Plus, which has just reinvented itself again this week. Um, You know, they're obviously not going to go back to MySpace or any number of these other things that they've used in the past. Your friends are on Facebook in all likelihood, and especially if you live in the U.S. or Western Europe or many other markets around the world, um, and you there isn't really anywhere else you can go. And so from that perspective, they're fairly safe with this approach. And they they do introduce big changes quite carefully. Um, So when they first introduced advertising uh, on the mobile app, for example, they did it very carefully, very slowly. Uh, And, you know, with Instagram, they've done the same thing. With WhatsApp, they're not even touching that side of things yet. So, you know, they do do these things very carefully, um, so the, the mentality and the culture of moving fast and breaking things is, is more of a developer mentality than it is something that's necessarily customer-facing. They're still quite careful about what they do there, and I think that's really smart of them.
1: Well, thanks. That's fascinating. It'll be interesting to watch how Facebook uh, deals with the fact that apps are becoming the standard now, that web is reducing you know, in its share of use because of smartphones and tablets, and... Um, It'll be interesting to see how their app strategy continues to adapt, which I think we can assume uh, that it will.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, I think it will. I think you're right about that. Well, the third topic today is about docs, Um, so as in docs for Apple products specifically. And and the trigger for this conversation this week is that, um, in, in a strange way, various images and things have leaked out of a new dock for the Apple Watch from Apple. Um, They started to surface, I think, on a German blog earlier in the week, and now um, this dock is apparently on shelves in an Apple store. And I I still haven't seen an official announcement from Apple about this. I don't know if you have. Um, But uh, it's a new dock uh, that holds your Apple Watch in a way that's, you know, seems designed to be sort of a nightstand type scenario. Um, you know, obviously, the original the, the Apple Watch doesn't ship with a dock. It ships with this cable and this um, charger um, that's magnetic and sticks to the back of the watch. Um, and the watch, you know, does sort of stand up on its side, and already has in in Watch OS two a nightstand mode that works perfectly fine, even if you just lay it on its side while it's charging with the cable. Um, so this kind of raises the question of you know. Why does Apple feel the need to release a dock for Uh, The Apple Watch, there are various third-party ones out there already. And it it also raises the broader question of, um, you know, what is it with Apple products and Docs anyway? Um, You know, many other products don't have or feel the need for Docs, and yet, you know, Apple often does release them for various products, especially early on. So, Aaron, why don't you kick us off here on this discussion? Well, it's
1: time for another history lesson. We talked about (laughs) version tracker, and we're going back to the same era by talking about iPods with Docs. What a lot of people don't know or remember about Apple is that, so when the original iPod shipped, it had a FireWire connector in it, which meant you had to plug a FireWire cable in. This was primarily because FireWire was so fast, so it made it really quick to fill up your iPod with music. The problem was that FireWire cables were expensive, FireWire as a connection was not popular at all in Windows uh, in the Windows world, and so Apple had a problem that if they wanted Windows users to buy iPods, they'd have to get a Mac with FireWire. And so Apple eventually released a version of the iPod that was called the iPod with Dock Connector. That's how Apple still refers to it in its, in its iPod genealogy. And the reason it was called that is because the way you connected your iPod to your computer was through a dock, not a cable. Uh, obviously, there's a cable running off the back of the dock that connects to a USB port on your computer. Or you could do the same thing with a firewire cable. But the point was is that this was when the 30-pin connector was introduced, was with this iPod with dock connector. And it was a dock. It wasn't a cable. You actually had this piece, you know, this shaped piece of plastic where the iPod sort of slotted in and connected to the 30-pin connector. And I remember, in fact, when Apple stopped shipping the dock because I thought they were cheaping out on, you know, for iPod purchasers where you just got the cable instead of actually having a dock This I, I wonder, I mean it's hard to say what influence this has but it seemed to create a legacy of sorts where internally Apple feels that they have to have a dock for everything that they make I mean obviously not for laptops but for everything else, for tablets for, for iPhones for iPods and for uh, now the Apple Watch Apple feels like they have to make a dock for everything Yeah Have you ever used them? So I've used different docks at different points. Um, I had an iPod with a dock connector, so I used the dock, and I liked having a dock. Like I said, I I felt like Apple was was going cheap by not shipping docks anymore. Um, When I switched to the iPhone, I didn't have a dock for a long time. Uh, In fact, I think I bought one and never used it. Same thing with an iPad 2. I bought an Apple dock for the iPad 2. And that was where I thought it would be legitimately useful because being able to stand up an I, iPad on a desk without having to hold it would be nice to use it as you know a second screen for stuff. I ended up not using that at all either because I bought a case like a, a shell case for the back of my iPad and and it didn't it made it so that the dock wouldn't fit the iPad anymore.
0: Um, right yeah I don't think I've ever used any of the docks I think I might have had I might have had a keyboard dock for the original iPad I think that might be the one exception so um, because it kind of propped up your iPad while you use the keyboard which was kind of nice So they could use it in um, portrait mode uh, rather than using it with a case in which you can only really prop it up in landscape mode so that was helpful um, but uh, other than that I don't think I've ever really used them but it's sort of kind of wonder, is part of the reason for the doc to kind of put your Apple product prominently on display? Is that kind of the idea? It's sort of part of the conspicuous consumption. You know, with an iPod, while it's plugged in, do you really need to have it propped up so you could see it better? Would it not work just as well kind of lying on the desk or whatever in front of you?
1: I'll be totally honest. I, this, I don't know why Apple does it. I think it's a weird obsession that some designer, maybe Johnny Hive has, that <laughs> Apple has to make a doc for all these products. And what's especially strange to me about it is that... Their dock is never the best version. It, it's, it's a rare instance where Apple has never made the best version of a product. Their docks have never been the best dock that you could buy for any of their products, with the exception yeah. of the iPod way back in the day. But it's certainly not true now. I mean, Greg Koenig, who is the industrial designer behind the, the Luma Loop, it's a camera strap, really cool. He blogs on his own blog, it's called Atomic Delights, and he doesn't blog a lot, unfortunately, because he's fantastic, but when he does, he has really interesting things to say. But he also is worth following on Twitter, and on Twitter he had this comment to make. He said, I'm sorry, but the Apple Watch charging dock is a super unimpressive solution. Expensive, large, big seam around the UFO edge. And he's complaining about it as an industrial designer, and I, I'm inclined to agree. It's a, it's 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 just weird, and it feels like it's the sort of thing that, I, I mean, it's it feels like it's the same part of Johnny Ive that designed the hockey puck mouse for the original iMac.
0: Hmm. Yeah. It's 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 funny. It's 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 a strange thing, and um yeah i mean I, I have i have an apple watch and i plug it in well don't plug it in but i place it on the magnetic connector every night to charge and i don't really see the benefit of having this over what i have right now it just doesn't really appeal to me and uh, but i felt the same way about all the other docks and holders and things that i've seen launched from the apple watch from third party since it launched i just don't see the point frankly if i'm not wearing it i'm probably asleep anyway um, I've got an alarm clock by the bed. So if I need to look at the time, I'll do that. And because the problem is even in nightstand mode, the Apple watch screen isn't on, you have to tap it or shake it or whatever to make that screen come on at nighttime. So it's not that useful as a sort of glanceable nighttime clock anyway. So yeah, I, I've never seen the value in it, but I, I find it interesting. This has come out, especially with so little fanfare, um, you know, from Apple itself is now on their website and in their stores, but, uh. You know, I I haven't seen an official announcement for it, which is funny, too.
1: That's what's so weird about it to me, because this isn't a trivial thing. I, I mean, it's not like it's no big deal to design a new product, source the manufacturing for it, ship it to all your retail outlets and maintain an inventory on it and set up the SKUs and sell it on your website. Like, this is a lot of work. And it's right. just so strange to me that Apple puts the work into their docs because I don't think they. I mean, they must think it's still worth it, mm-hmm. but I w- would be surprised if I learned why, I think, because on this face page. Yeah, it I mean, I guess sense. the one.
0: The one, the one thing that I would say is, you know, accessories always have high margins. You know, they often have the highest margins of the, any products because there's no real electronics in them. So they're dirt cheap to make oftentimes. And yet Apple sells them for a lot of money, you know, whether it's the cables or the plugs or if, you know, docks like this, you know, this is $79 for, you know, what looks like a fairly basic piece of equipment. Um, and so I wonder if it's partly that, you know, that this helps to boost margins overall. Then um, Apple would rather you bought one of their docks than somebody else's, because then they get the full price and the full margin associated with that, even if they sell it through the store. So that that may be one reason it feels sort of somewhat cynical, but it would make sense.
1: No, it's true. I, I mean, I think Apple's cynicism about their docks is on display when you look at the prices. I think they know there are people who will always just buy them because Apple makes them. I mean, the, 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 the new dock for the Apple Watch doesn't even come with the charging brick to plug into the wall. So it comes with a lightning cable that plugs into the back of the UFO thing, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't come with a brick to plug the USB cable into the wall with, which is how Uh, almost everybody would use it. I mean, this is clearly a nightstand kind of device. Right. And And so unless you're bringing your own charging brick to it, maybe the one you got originally with your Apple Watch. Then yes. you're not going to have it Most it people
0: would, but, yeah, it's not going to work as a second charger because it's not sort of a complete solution. Well,
1: that's what's strange about it is because if this is in mm-hmm. your nightstand and you have to use the charging brick that came with your Apple Watch, that mm-hmm. means you need to find some other way to plug in the cable that came with your watch, either into your computer right. or buy another brick. And, and that, you know, again, is just... It it, it's an omission that really I think speaks to your point about these being really high-margin products for Apple. They didn't even bother to put the charging brick in,
0: right? (laughs) Yeah,
1: it's kind of funny.
0: All right, well we'll leave that there. Um, Interesting uh, sort of discussion of the history there as well as kind of this specific product. Um, We'll wrap up with our weekly pick, and it's Aaron's turn this week, and he has a book to recommend for us.
1: I do. It's it's based. So I teach um, among other things here. I teach a communications class for master students in public administration. And we make a big deal out of how they write. Uh, The truth is, you know, it seems like people's writing abilities are going down instead of up. And uh, and, and ironically, I think a lot of the reasons people write poorly has to do with their high school and university educations. Um, People are taught to write very academically. You know, when you're in high school, you're taught, okay, I have to write at least five pages. Um, and then when you get into college, you're taught to use a passive voice like crazy because that's what smart people sound like. And, mm-hmm. and it's funny because when I get these graduate students, I have to beat all that out of them. <laughs> and I do, it, I do it because it's important for communication. Um, you, can't, you can't write a lot and be nearly as effective as if you can write little. And the, the same is true of things like passive voice. And, and I teach students that they need to kind of strip all that out and write more like they did when they were in fourth grade. And so in the spirit of that, it, and also I make this point to them that writing is their craft. The, the majority of what they do professionally will be writing, and it'll be writing simple things like emails. It'll be writing reports or briefs for their bosses. It'll be writing letters that go to... to um, to, to who knows who. And and so the point is that they have to write a lot. It's it's their craft. And I think that's true for the great majority of people today is that professionally writing is our craft. And even if you don't write things like you write, Yan, right? I mean, you write for public consumption on your blog, but you also write reports for your clients all the time. Right. And, and you're an excellent writer, and you're good at keeping your language spare and simple and direct and clean. And so in the spirit of that... Uh, I I want to recommend a book. It's called On Writing Well. It's written by a guy named William Zinser, who is a journalist for most of his career. This book is uh, sort of one of the old standbys that a lot of people don't know about. Um, I think when most people are thinking of a book on writing, they think of, like, Elements of Style by Strunk and White. Um, This is a book about writing nonfiction, so if you're interested in becoming a better fiction writer, you'd have things to learn from this book, but it wouldn't be the essence of what you need. Um, right. But what I really like about Zinster's approach is he talks about essentially writing as a transaction. When you write nonfiction, there is an expected transaction where, you're in, where the person reading what you wrote ought to be getting something in particular out of it. And when you write with a focus on the, the nature of the transaction and sort of how it works, um, it makes you a better writer. He makes a big deal out of simplicity he, he makes a big deal out of simple language that can also be creative, but uh, focusing on on cutting out things like the passive voice or weak subjects. So you get some details, specific ways to improve your writing, but also he gives you sort of a, a a general like theoretical approach to writing that I think can help everybody write better. The book goes through principles of writing and then methods for writing, and then ends up with 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 advice on specific forms of writing like how to write up an interview, how to uh, write in your job. He even talks about how to write for sports. Um, And so uh, then the part four of the book is all about attitudes towards writing and the way we tend to think about writing and, and maybe the way we should think about it differently. It's a fantastic book. It's a quick read. You can find it on Amazon. It's available for the Kindle. It's available on iBooks because it's one of those books that's been around forever. It's also relatively inexpensive, and so if you're if if writing is part of your craft, and and odds are it is, even if you're just writing emails, if writing is part of your craft, then this is a book you should read. Great, and it's on writing well, William Zinser, and that's
0: Z-I-N-S-S-E-R. double Great. Okay. Great. Well, thanks, Aaron we'll wrap up there thanks for being with us as always we'll put relevant links on the website as we always do at podcast.beyonddevices and we'll be with you again next week thanks